to Hashtag Authentic, a podcast for creatives online. I'm Sarah Tasker, and this is episode 58. How long do you think it takes to be successful? I mean, obviously, that is impossible to answer, but I do wonder if somewhere in the back of your mind, there isn't a secret answer that you're kind of quietly holding on to. It's so easy to look at the outliers and those statistical unicorns, people like Mrs. Hinch Home and assume that if it doesn't happen for us overnight, then it's not going to happen for us at all. My guest this week is testament to the power of sustained hard work, of continually showing up, evolving, and being joyfully and unequivocally yourself. I'm going to let her introduce herself in her own words in just a moment, but before that, I just want to steal you to remind you about my upcoming book, Hashtag Authentic, the same name as this podcast. And it's all about building a community and your creativity online, on Instagram, and on your own terms. It's going to be hitting the shelves in February of 2019, which is just a couple of months away now. But you can pre-order it online at Amazon and anywhere you want to buy your books from. For everyone that pre-orders it, I'm going to be sending you a poster that ties in with the book, as well as a handwritten thank you note as a small token of my gratitude for all of your support and your encouragement through this whole process. You can go to meanorlay.co.uk forward slash book for more information on all of that. Okay, on with today's conversation. Hi, Kate. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Very excited to be on. I'm really excited to be talking to you. This is our first time talking in real life, actually, not not on the internet. So it's an extra treat for me. We have talked quite a bit on the internet, I think. Yeah. (laughs) Over the years. Um, Could you give us the introduction to who you are and what you do for anyone who doesn't already know? So I'm a journalist by trade and I run the UK's number one interiors blog, madaboutthehouse.com. And I've also written a book on interiors, also called Mad About the House. Um, And I've just launched a podcast called The Great Indoors with Sophie Robinson from uh, Off the Telly, her Off the Telly, (laughs) DIY SOS and The Great Interior Design Challenge. Which is an amazing partnership, actually. Were you two friends already in real life? Is that how that came about? We met, uh, we were going on a job to Nottingham and we met at the train station and instantly started chatting uh, and we're then chatting so much we got on the wrong train uh, and went to Leicester instead of Nottingham. So that was, you know, we look, we immediately came across as super professional and on top of our game um, and then sort of got on the right train and slunk back and did the job and we've been mates ever since. I love that. That's the start of all good friendships. <laughs> Um, oh, I have so many directions I want to go in with you. So first of all, for anyone listening, because obviously this is purely auditory, could you describe your interior style? My interior style, I used to always call it urban glamour. Nice. Um, because I like, I used to, I do quite like that industrial style, but I like it a little bit smarter. So I don't have everything perfect. I like dark paint colours, but lots of textile. There's lots of velvet. There's linen. There's the odd kind of tassel. It's quite rich colours. But I have just redecorated. Obviously, some people may know my first book was called Shades of Grey, and my house was very grey. It was it was full of grey paint. And I've redone it, and I'm now moving towards much warmer richer colors so I'm in my sitting room at the moment and the walls are kind of chocolate brown I've got a pale pink uh chaise long and a natural linen one so I'm sort of living in a Neapolitan ice cream delicious (laughs) (laughs) um for context I should say I'm in a room that is painted entirely brilliant white 
but I absolutely, I think you are my favourite interiors blogger, even though my interior style is quite different to yours. What I absolutely adore about you is, is well, A, you have fantastic taste, but B, the passion. You're like, it's genuinely your love. And so everything you do is just full of love and passion. Oh, thank you. I do love it. I mean, I've been writing about interiors for, for, for a long time now, and I, I never get bored with it. I always want to see the next thing. I'm always interested in what people are doing, moving their furniture around when they've gone to the loo. Um, <laughs> I just, I, <laughs> I'll just tweak that a little <laughs> I love that. Please come to my house. I've got some questions for you. <laughs> to the loo a lot um so how did you get started you mentioned you were a journalist by trade take us back to the beginning of this kind of online journey for you so I was a news reporter I trained as a news reporter in Birmingham actually on the Birmingham Post and Mail um so I was covering magistrates court uh, magistrates uh courts yes and knocking on doors and proper old-fashioned news journalism which actually I'm not very good at. Um, and I always wanted to write features and they, they sort of wouldn't have me. Um, and I moved to London with my then boyfriend, now husband. And he got a job first because he was an editor. Um, and I followed him down and did more news reporting um, and at The Guardian and The Telegraph. And I ended up at The Independent being their night reporter and kept saying, please let me write features. And they were like, no, no, we're very special on the features desk. We don't want the likes of you. Um, and eventually uh, I had to get pregnant. That's not quite how it worked, but I did <laughs> get pregnant and I went freelance. And that was the moment at which I was able to move from news across to features because it's difficult to be a news reporter when you've got a baby because you can't say, you know, can you actually not let that bomb off because the nanny's coming? <laughs> You know, it's harder and you become very desk bound, which actually I don't mind because I love writing. I love putting sentences together and thinking about what the story is. So I started writing freelance after my son was born and he's about to be 18. <laughs> and um, so and there was a gap, as is often the way I'd been at the independent for five years somebody on the property desk needed something writing and they knew who I was, they knew I was around and they asked me to do it. And I just loved it. It was a bit like the light bulb went on. So I started writing about the best houses on the market for sale that week. And I loved looking at all the property details. Of course, back then, uh, it wasn't online. Yeah. So I postman would turn up with these sort of huge armfuls of brochures, glossy brochures for me to look through. Um, and, and I really enjoyed doing it. And then I started, as it were, moving inside and writing about interiors and, you know, answering people's questions. So I just built up a kind of bank of knowledge, if you like, because I interviewed all the experts and I did that for years. And then, I mean, as you know, newspapers sales are not, they're not what they were. And, um, I just found I didn't have quite as much work. So I set up the blog in 2012, mainly as an online CV. I thought, well, it'll get me more work. And it just kind of took off beyond where I ever thought it would to the point where now I don't have time to write for the newspapers. <laughs> I love that. Well, one really nice part of that story is that actually maternity leave gave you more opportunity, which was a story we don't hear very often. Um, normally it's the other way around, isn't it? But I think that's true. I mean, I suppose that's the joy of, of having a writing career is you can kind of do it from anywhere. 
Um, you know, you can do it from home. I, you know, just spent years sitting at my kitchen table, you know, eating breakfast at it, shoving the bowl to one side, pulling the laptop over and typing. So, I mean, that's been brilliant. And also, you know, not having any work, I suppose, became an opportunity because I had to, you know, dig in and yeah. find something else to do. And that was the blog and going online. And the irony of that was that other people who had blogs were saying, oh, I really want to get into print. How do you get into print? And I was like, no, no, run in the opposite direction. It's a funny world, isn't it, as well? Because I still feel like print is the place where most people perceive the prestige. Like the I dream is to get true. into print. And, you know, I it, it is still wonderful to see your name in print. Of course it is. Um, but I do think that, you know, perceptions are changing. Brands are becoming much more aware of the, you know, the possibilities of online, it's more immediate. So I don't know, I don't know where it will go, whether maybe it will come back. I mean, I think glossy magazines will always look beautiful and people will always want them on their coffee table. So. I agree. I, I think it's, it's almost about we're losing some publications, but perhaps they need to be lost in order to kind of raise the bar all round. So um, in terms of kind of your online presence, what are the main revenue streams, if you're happy to talk about that kind of, I think a lot of people out there are like, but how, how did you make having a blog pay in, in the same way as writing for, for newspapers did? It was, it was slow, um, partly because people weren't used to the idea. So, I mean, when I started in 2012, people would sort of email and say, oh, well, will you write this post? Um, we'll give you 30 pounds. Um, and that, that was the start. And then there was also, will you write this post? We'll give you a lamp and we'll give you a cushion. And I remember talking to a, a freelance stylist, interior stylist. She rang me up in tears one week and she said, I've got seven Kindles, 48 pots of paint, 27 cushions, and I can't pay the rent. Um, yeah. And it wasn't like that to start with. So, you know, at the, it probably sounds terribly old fashioned to say, but it, it goes around and comes around. My husband had a job. And so I was very lucky that I w was given the time because we had one steady income yeah. to build up my own. And I could obviously come back to how I did that more. But now he's setting up a business. So we're in the position that I've got more of an income. So it does, you know, we've been able to work it that way uh, while he sets his business up. But I did to come back to kind of it was always product, product, product. And I did write a couple of quite sort of stiff emails to companies saying, you know, you're getting paid to push this product to me and you're selling these products and are you are hoping that I will drive sales for you and you're giving me a lamp you know that doesn't pay my bills but perceptions are now changing and the other thing I was very clear about was that I didn't want advertising as such on the blog um, again back back in 2012 I make it sound like the dark ages but <laughs> in terms of online that was quite a long time ago a lot has changed um, there were a lot of these sort of pop-up and banner adverts oh, yeah. and they looked very ugly. And I didn't want to have gone to the trouble of designing a beautiful blog and writing about beautiful things and having this horrible sort of flashing orange and black signs. And they paid terribly as well. It was like a penny per click or something, really, really badly, like not lucrative at all. And I just thought exactly that. I thought it's not going to make, you know, enough money to make it worth it. Um, and I know even back then when you see those adverts, 
I might not click through from that website, but I might remember it if I was on the bus or something and then go and click through later. So even though you might have seen it in a certain place, that you don't necessarily revisit through that portal. Yeah, so that person doesn't, doesn't get the credit. Exactly. So I took was able to take a longer-term approach. So I kept on with the journalism. And in terms of the online CV thing, I then ended up writing for the Financial Times for a couple of years for their house and home section whilst running the blog alongside it. I always seem to have had one of these multi-portfolio careers with slightly too much to do. Um, <laughs> and so I was able to kind of juggle. And as the blog got bigger, I could do less in the newspapers. And sort of worked out a program where I would do a sponsorship with a brand. And I think it's much more common now, but then I would say, well, I will write three blog posts for you. And this was, I wasn't doing Instagram, perhaps Instagram didn't exist then. Uh, I will write you three blog posts over a six month period and you will pay me X. And then the idea would be to try and set up as many of those as I could. And I still sort of use that model, although obviously, now you factor in Instagram and a bit more on Twitter. And and I think brands are much more open to that kind of collaboration. Yeah, that landscape has changed dramatically since yeah. that time. I think I started maybe a year or two after kind of when you're describing and it was still such a fledgling industry that most people had no idea that, that it even existed. Um, well, we were all making it up as we went yeah. along. Yeah, and that's kind of the thing I'm hearing from what you're talking about is it's almost like the fact that you know, you weren't like a 19-year-old blogger, kind of, you know, all green and fresh-faced. And you had experience of, of working with these kind of companies in a professional capacity already meant that you had real expectations of kind of how the, this needed to be done and you weren't willing to kind of be taken advantage of. Um, and that's worked in your favour. Maybe that's a, that's a, an advantage to being older. You get a bit grumpier, um, <laughs> you know, and it was like, no, I'm not doing that for 30 quid and a lamp go away well you value uh, your time which is absolutely right yeah and and I think you know you've got uh, you know as you get older I mean I'm 51 now um you have a bit more confidence in your ability and and your knowledge and you know and I I knew that I knew stuff because I'd been writing about it for years and years and years and I'd interviewed a lot of the top brains so I knew I had something to say and I knew I could write so I was sort of put a value on my time and, and I suppose perhaps people came up to that expectation. That's good. And I wouldn't, I feel like you probably had a role in really shaping expectations of brands because without the kind of the ambassadors like you kind of laying it down on the line for people, I wonder if they would have been even slower to come around to the idea that actually this needed to be a reciprocal relationship. Well, it's very flattering of you to say so. I don't know, but I'm quite good with a grumpy email on behalf of several people. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned then you're 51. Um, I think that's a really, what do I want to say? I'm really pleased that you mentioned that because I know there's a lot of people listening to this podcast who, who tend to think that kind of this online thing is a young person's game. I'm doing the uh, bunny ears there. But that, yeah. you know, maybe that you do have to be a certain kind of 19-year-old uh, bikini-clad waif on a beach in order to be taken seriously or in order to kind of gain any traction on a platform like Instagram for example um do you ever feel like that that ageism is is a part of this industry it's an interesting thing because I mean I suppose arguably I reinvented myself at the age of 45 yeah and if you'd said to me when I was 35 
I'd have been thinking, oh, can I, you know, 45, let's put on some elasticated waist trousers and have a lie down. And actually, you know, I'm busier than I ever have been and I have a better income than I ever have been. So, I mean, I think there is, yes, there is a, in a way a perception of it being a young person's game, but then you don't have to be bound by that. You know, I wanted a corner of the internet. I needed a corner of the internet because I needed to to revitalize my my slightly flagging career, if you like. Um, so I, I went out and got it. And I mean, I, there were certain things when I started that, I mean, I've never been very good at tech and I, I have um, someone who helps me, who designs the website and he sorts it out when it goes wrong. <laughs> um, but when I started, so I would blog seven days a week. I actually blogged for the first three years. And for the first three months, I didn't know you could schedule a post in advance. <laughs> um, so I'd literally be there at 10 o'clock at night going, type, type, typing. That's the journalist in you with a deadline. <laughs> and and then I discovered this scheduling button and it was sort of magic. You know, I could write a month's post in, in a week and, you know, set them all to go off on, on timing. So I think the problem when you're a bit older is that, you don't know what you don't know mm. if you see what's happening. So when I speak to people who, if you like, have grown up with the internet, they're like, well, why don't you do that? Yeah. And I'm like, well, I didn't know that was a thing. So while I, my brain is too full to know or care too much about how it works. So, you know, I'm going to pay someone to, in the same way I pay someone to do my accounts, I'm going to pay someone to make the technical side of things work because I'm not going to learn at all but I mean I do know having said that more than probably other people my age and it's a choice you make isn't it you either want to adopt it and learn about it or you want to shut it away and pretend it's not happening and yeah decide which way you're going and I guess that maybe speaks to the advantage the one advantage young people do have when we're generalizing obviously here but is that when you're starting out you generally can't afford to pay someone to do an awful lot for you so you are kind of bootstrapping and doing it all yourself from your kitchen table. And if you've already got kind of a natural affinity with it and you know exactly what's possible and you can do it without thinking, you've got fewer barriers to kind of establishing yourself than Absolutely. somebody who's got that and, learning curve. Yeah, and I think that's brilliant. I really admire that. Um, I remember, I mean, you know, I've never understood SEO, for example. And, and again, back in 2012, 2013, I would download these PDFs going, right, <laughs> I read about it. What is it? And it's like white noise. My eyes blaze. Mm -hmm. So mine has all been organic. But um, and I, you know, I, as I say, I publish a lot. I mean, I have sort of saturated that bit of the Internet. Well, yeah. So you said seven days a week. Now, I think this is really key because a lot of people now, they, they kind of decide, OK, I'm going to be a blogger. I'm going to grow my Instagram. And then they, they start and they do some posts and then they think, oh, it's not working. No one's finding me. And the conclusion a lot of people come to is, oh, it used to be easier. All these people who've got a following, kind of an established audience, it's because it was easier back then. And I, like, things have definitely changed and some things have got harder and some things maybe haven't. But what you've just touched on then really speaks to the fact that everyone's always been hustling. The people who make it are the ones who keep putting yeah. their content out there and work really, really hard to get to get this seen. Is 
this is it. When I first started, obviously there weren't very many interiors blogs, but the, the sort of giant among them all was Design Sponge, yeah. which is Grace Bonnie, an American blog, which is brilliant. And I had no idea. I mean, it was called a blog and I could see that the name Grace Bonnie was all over it. Um, and she seemed to be publishing eight times a day and never occurred to me that there would be a team of people. And actually, I think by that stage or shortly afterwards, she was bought by another company. So it was a, it was a huge undertaking. And there was also, you know, Remodelista came along and Apartment Therapy. These are big organizations with a team of people. I had no idea. So I thought, oh, my God, I, I, must, I must publish more than once a day. I must do this. So I did it for a while because I did have some archive content. So I didn't write everything new. And I would I did repurpose some of the stuff that I'd written over the course of a freelance career in newspapers. Um, but then after three years, went down to five times a week. Which and is still, still by most people's months. standards. I, I mean, most people I speak to don't even do five a month. Well, yes, the thing is, I mean, there's two things to be said there. I mean, I now do four times a week, uh, which can still be quite hard because I seem to have so many other things around the edges. But there is, there's consistency. You've got to, you know what, you've just got to show up, basically. Yes. So I show up, or the blog shows up, at 7 o'clock every morning. Um, that's just a sort of fact of, of its life. Um, I've slightly lost my thread. What was I going to say? So, so when I started, I read quite a lot of stuff online about, you know, how what is a blog? Google, where do I get a blog? Google, <laughs> what am I doing? Um, and I remember Googling, you know, about starting up blogs and how many people will read my blog. I did put that into Google. Um, and what did Google say? What did it say? Well, I mean, there was a whole lot of guff, but there was one thing which chimes with what you were saying, that to start with, you're so excited that you're pushing out content, you know, five times a week, and you just don't care if anybody's reading it. And then after a couple of months, you think, Do you know what? Well, at least my mum's reading it. <laughs> and then after, I think it was between three and six months, this post I read, I've never forgotten it, called it the sort of the, the, the winter of the blogger's discontent. <laughs> and what it said basically was that you you're you're plugging it out there you know no one's reading it apart from your mum and the milkman and it's all a bit depressing so you start thinking oh i won't bother with that post tomorrow because no one will notice and nobody does notice so then you don't do the next one and then suddenly a month has gone by you haven't blogged you haven't missed it nobody said anything and it's dead so i decided that i needed to get round that so I set up a series which was called 365 Objects of Design and I numbered them. And the idea was that I would have to do that post every single day so that I would get myself beyond my winter of discontent. That is so um, interesting. Well, and that well, that's how I did it. And it was like a little postcard. And again, I think the landscape has changed. It now feels wrong to talk about buying something new every day. But yeah. back then it was a little sort of bit of content. And I have to say, what has been really helpful for me is being a journalist. I used to write a feature in the Saturday Independent. It was called The 50 Best. And I would do one or two a month. And it would be the 50 best lampshades, the 50 best chairs, the 50 best artisanal sausages. And you have to write 75 words on each one. Oh, wow. Couldn't start them all with this <laughs> or I think. So that was 
fantastically good training because I can write 75 words on anything probably in about 30 seconds. Um, so for me, that 365 objects of design worked brilliantly because I could just keep it going. And I used to get lovely emails from people saying, oh, I love looking at that little picture and not much work, not, not many words in the morning. You know, it's a nice little thing to see what you found. So I carried on and I, then I did it the second year and I went wrong in the numbers. And then, <laughs> then I had to go back and I was all a disaster. So I took the numbers off, but the, the principle of it remained. And then I sort of factored in other things. So I do a feature every Monday called 10 Beautiful Rooms, which is some of the most beautiful rooms on Instagram and kind of shout out to people who've, who've you know, got great accounts. And I still do that property looking at other people's houses. So there's more, more varied content now, but I have kept with that habit of, you know, seven o'clock every morning. That's amazing. It's quite similar, actually. I My first year on Instagram, I had a 365 project, which was, you know, I'm going to post every single day. And you yeah. get to a point where you're like, well, I've done it for so many months. I don't want to break it now. Exactly. Yeah. And so you're kind of doing it for yourself, even if no one's well, you're reading. you a new habit, aren't you? Isn't it Weight Watchers that says it takes 31 days to make a new habit or something? I mean, yeah. maybe it's 365 to make an online habit. But yeah, it's that regularity, isn't it? And then you also, you build your audience because people start to expect to see you in that place at that time on that bit of the internet. Absolutely. And that's that's how the principle of building an audience like that hasn't changed, however much the platforms maybe have evolved and however kind of um, like oversaturated it might feel like certain niches become, that principle still works. And also that that point of it being a niche. I mean, I think, again, when when we started, you you could just sort of write about what you wanted. And actually, because there's now just so much stuff, it's almost better to define your niche. And it can be quite narrow, but find your niche, stick to it. So I have never written about the shoes I'm wearing or, or, or what clothes I'm buying because I've stuck within my niche. I mean, that's partly, again maybe about being a bit older I don't want to put my face all over it and there certainly won't be any bikinis um but I think you do you know find what you want to write about it and and keep writing about it you mentioned to me um just before we hit record on this call um about when you were unwell in was it in 2013 yes it was 2014 I had cancer of the saliva gland um, which I'd had a lump under my ear, I was certain it was just a swollen gland. So I did ignore it for about six months, actually. Um, and and then I sort of, re I did go to the doctor and, you know, she said, oh, have more fibre. That's what they all seem to say, isn't it? <laughs> and, and, and she did a blood test, but which came back negative because my particular one, uh, passes along the nerves, not through the bloodstream. Oh. Um, and the lump was still there six months later. And I thought, I suddenly sort of thought, Do you know, if that was in my breast, I would be on the ceiling. Um, so I went back and, and started pursuing it. And I had a, a I had an MR scan and they said, oh, no, we think it's fine, but we're not sure. Go and have an MRI. Oh, we think it's fine, but we're not sure. Go and have a biopsy. Oh, you know, I had two biopsies. And in the end, they found it and it was operated on. And it's chemo-resistant. Um, it's an adenoid, no, I can't remember it, carcinoma, adenoid cystic carcinoma. And they uh, took it out. I had radiotherapy because chemotherapy doesn't work on it. So six and a half weeks of radiotherapy. And during that time, 
you were still posting. I mean, this is right at the beginning of kind of this journey you've been describing. You were still yeah. working all the way through, were you? I kept it going. I didn't. So yes, it was it was the sort of last six months of 2014. I finished on finished the last radiotherapy on the 23rd of December 2014, and signed my first book deal on the 5th of January 2015. <laughs> um, I was still absolutely mad on morphine, so I don't. I think if I hadn't been, I'm not sure I would have done it. <laughs> But I, I did keep going partly because it was I wasn't sharing my my private life on the blog really yeah. or online. And I didn't want to I didn't want to do that thing where I suddenly announced, you know, here's a girl with a tumor, I'm going to write about that. I wanted to keep it separate. And I think what very often happens with, with a cancer diagnosis is that it, it it's a bit like sort of going into the spin cycle in a washing machine. You know, you may have a symptom that doesn't hurt. I think often they don't hurt. Mine didn't. Um, and then, so you go along and you have tests and you're sort of meandering along having the test. And then suddenly they go, right, that's it. It's malignant. It's coming out. You're doing treatment. And you sort of go onto this spin cycle where it's all treatment and hospitals and plans and programs. And then you stop and it's like, right, off you go. Hmm. And so you necessarily have time to process it so for me I didn't really want to talk about it because I hadn't quite thought about it and equally there was something quite nice about just keeping going um, and keeping what becomes your new normal and I think if I'd had chemotherapy I wouldn't have been able to but I my treatment started in November and I was fine. Radiotherapy kind of builds up and up. So I was fine through November. And then in December, I did archive posts, which no one really seemed to notice. And I think December for me on the blog is never a particularly big month anyway. So I sort of did a series of posts. And these have been the highlights of the year. And, and then because I'd learned how to schedule by that stage, you see, I could do them all in advance. Um, and then I just carried on on with the treatment. So... I didn't didn't talk about it. And then weirdly, sort of afterwards, I thought, well, people should know. People should know that I've that that you can carry on, that there is, you know, there can be a way through for other people. So yeah. I've talked about it more since and you know, and I've processed it in my head since as well, obviously. Yeah, that seems really key as well because it's so public, and especially when you've already got an established audience, if you don't know how you feel about it yet. To put it out there, it can be extremely vulnerable, I imagine. Yes, it's difficult. And you don't know how people will react. And then, in fact, this year, I, I think there was World Head and Neck Cancer Day uh, a few months ago. And I did a post um, of, I have a very big scar on my neck. And I did a post of my head with the scar. And I said, do you know what? It's World Head and Neck Cancer Day. And I'm going to talk about this now because I feel ready to. And I'm going to put it out there. And I had hundreds of wonderful messages of support but also lots of messages from people saying do you know I've got a lump and I've been ignoring it and I was just go go and have it checked and other people saying oh I've just had a check I'm waiting for the results so I felt that god it's going to sound ridiculous not using my platform for good but I felt that you know it had been helpful to some people and you know ultimately if, if one person gets something checked out and you know, is able to have treatment for it yeah. for it's too late. And that's a wonderful thing. No, that I mean that's that's huge and that like that's influence, I suppose, isn't it? Like it's that weird that we all hate to apply to ourselves. But if you if you have a platform 
um, there's kind of a responsibility that comes with it about the messages we put out to the world, and that seems like a really important one for you to be sharing in particular. Yeah. Um, I don't know how quite how to move on from that because it feels <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of gentle lift music, and on we go. <laughs> Um, so you mentioned in, in the, the chaos of all of that going on in your life and probably everything feeling completely upside down, you signed your book deal. So that was your first book. Tell us the title. That's Shades of Grey. Um, and I'd actually had the idea kicking around. That came from a, a blog post I'd written called How to Choose the Right Shade of Grey. Um, and it was a huge blog post. I think I wrote it in 2012 and still, you know, two years later, it was getting 500 hits a day. It was a, it was a massive post. Um, so I'd had the idea of, of making it into a book um, and had had an agent and things hadn't worked out. And um, but the idea, I think, had been pushed out there. So. Uh, the publisher rang me and said, do you want to do it? And I remember saying, oh, don't be ridiculous. No one's painting grey anymore. <laughs> 2015, we're finished. Um, and she said, no, no, I, I, I think you'll find it's still going quite strong. <laughs> right then. Um, so that was the first one. Um, and yes, that came out and that did, that, that did okay, I think. It, it was, um, I never really knew, I got a flat fee for that one, not royalty, so mm. I didn't know how, how it sold, sold because they paid me and we sort of moved on. Was it pre um, or post then, Fifty Shades of Grey? It's not yet, but no, it was Shades of Grey, yes. But was it the, pre or post the, the whole Fifty Shades ridiculousness? Well, I think that's why it did quite well, because it got quite a lot of publicity because uh, of the title. Good. Um, <laughs> and I remember telling this story, which, which is sort of true at my launch party for that book that I'd gone to have my nails done or something and and um the woman doing my nails had said oh you know you do it you're doing anything nice I said well I'm going to a party I've written a book oh you've written a book what's it called shades of grey oh my god we've got her in here she's in here Come on. oh champagne I said no no it's clearly not that one <laughs> hold the champagne love do you want a cup of tea you should have owned it you should have been yes but and, and it's <laughs> mildly exaggerated for comic effect but there, it had that uh she definitely did react like that it was a moment <laughs> she did that book um and and so it you know it was a great title and it did well um and then the my second one came out in march this year uh which is called mad about the house how to decorate your home with style and that's with pavilion the publisher a different publisher um, and so I wanted very much to to do a book of a blog because it comes back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, print's still lovely, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and Mad About the House feels like you. It feels like picking up kind of like like picking up a printed version of your blog. I do write how I talk. That's true. Um, so and that was the idea that it was a lot of the content from the blog written perhaps in slightly less of a hurry um, and, a, and a bit more edited but with but it's I think in a way you know it, it it's it's almost more searchable isn't it because you can flick through a book and you can look at chapter headings and sometimes search engines on blogs aren't quite as good as they ought to be um, or it can be difficult to find things yeah so. and there's something very immersive about a book in a way that I can't I can't get my headspace into when I'm reading a blog. There's so much to distract me and notifications popping up or, yeah. you know, it's I'm much more of a skim reader on blogs, whereas if I sit down with the book, I can really soak in what I'm reading. Yeah, 
yeah absolutely and did you do your own photography for the book or did you work with a photographer well uh we we wanted to slightly reinvent the the coffee table book with that so there are almost no pictures at all no photographs um it's an illustrated book and so that that was quite interesting going for the publishing meeting and saying yeah no i've got this brilliant idea for a for a book about interiors but no no pictures all <laughs> words uh which is partly me you know i wasn't going to slog my way through forty thousand words for people to then go oh nice pictures yeah um, not read my words so there was a little bit of that um but i also thought the thing about interiors and coffee table books is they date very quickly so if you pick a cover of a dark sitting room which i might well have done uh because that looks like mine you know there's a huge amount of readers who are going to say well i don't like that sitting room i'm yeah. not buying book yeah so I wanted well we just have the name on the on the cover just words and I didn't want people to you know if it was very industrial style and people who like shabby chic wouldn't want to buy it and people who like pastel colors wouldn't want to buy it because it was very dark and I felt that or I hoped that I had information to share about how to find your style how to decorate your house some of the pitfalls that that were I could only hope worth reading and I didn't want people to be put off by the pictures. So we went for illustrations very specifically to not date it um, and to also then hopefully have broader appeal. But what people have said to me since it's come out is that the illustrations, they've really liked them because they don't feel they're being pushed into a particular interior style mm. because picture saying you know it's a sort of nice line drawing of a chair in front of a you know under a lamp in front of a window and they feel it's not sort of prescriptively saying to them this is what your house needs to look like at this time so that's been a sort of side benefit which I hadn't quite thought about I suppose which again is very you it feels that's that's you it's not your home book it is actually you and your kind of your passion for interiors put into words yeah. um did you have to fight quite hard for that were the publishers fairly on board with it well, I've since discovered um, that my editor, who is wonderful, um, Steph and Katie at Pavilion, and they were totally on board with it. But I have since discovered there were apparently a few meetings, uh, sales team going, put in more pictures and them going, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely putting in loads and then not doing it. <laughs> so that's sold afterwards. And I can understand why the sales team were nervous because you know, that hadn't really quite been done before, particularly with interiors, you know, right, just having pictures. Um, but they they held their nerve, and I'm very grateful for them. And, um, you know, it, it's worked. And I've just signed the contract for the third book, which will not be out till 2020. Although I've got to write 40,000 words by the end of March, Ooh. apparently. Um, and that will be similar. It will be a different book, but we will have the same illustrations so that there's a sort of, it'll be a companion to the first one. Again, I feel like something in there about about all of your experience and about you being a bit older and knowing yourself by the time you got to that stage, that means that you were able to know what you wanted and to speak up for it. Because I've spoken to people who've kind of done book deals like in their early 20s and felt really kind of, uh, railroaded maybe by the publishers that yeah. into doing exactly what their vision was and, and felt like they didn't recognise the end result. I've I've heard that too, and and as I, I have to say, yes, I'm I'm older and I'm grumpier, and I knew what I wanted, and I think I also 
I mean, I by the time of that book, the the new one, I had enough confidence to say, do you know what? I've got this many people who read the blog, and this is what they like, and this many people on the on Instagram. So, I I knew that it had to feel like me. That was the point, and I was prepared to fight for that. Yeah, oh, it's, a, it's a bit of a journey. I've been on my book is coming out in February. And yes, kind of just from, from that first meeting where I felt so small and so terrified and I was going, okay, yes, 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 to, I mean, I'm now I'm 35, it's not like I'm a newbie here, but like um, to the end point where I was going, no, no, I know my audience, I know how they'll feel if you put that in and I don't want it in there. And uh, all the stages in between where I was terrified and writing emails and getting everyone to read it and tell me if it was okay before I hit send and everything it's else. Very because you also you come up against you know you might have an editor who's very supportive of you but you come up against the sort of an implacable force that is the sales department yes, never you, named. You know, they, they do of course they know what they're talking about but they also you know they want tried and tested and this has worked before so let's do it again if it ain't broke don't fix mm. it and that's completely understandable there are sums of money involved there are livelihoods there's reputations I totally get that you know it's the same if you look at the television there there's always the same few presenters that come round and round and round because you know the program commissioners know that people want to watch them so it can be very difficult to to break a mold or or to change something and turn it round but I mean I I'm 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 sure I've been lucky that I've been able to do that but I I would say that it's very important if you have a vision of something that is about you, then you must fight for that. And, you know, at the end of the day, I I am my brand. You are your brand. So your book has to be you. Yes. That, that's who it is. Yes. And how cheated would somebody feel if they bought your book and went, oh, well, this isn't this doesn't feel like Kate. This isn't what I was expecting at all. Exactly. Yeah. And the damage ultimately, not only would it not sell as well, but the damage is, to, I feel like it would be to you or to me, it would be to our brand and our credibility. Exactly. So that's a gamble yeah. you just, you realise yeah. you're not willing to take. And you do have a gut instinct of if something's wrong. You know, you can absolutely listen to a sales department and understand, you know, why they're saying you should do it this way. But if it doesn't feel right, then, you know, you have to be brave and maybe walk away. Or, or fight a bit more, or find a better way to put your argument sometimes. There was one point when a friend of mine who is um, author, an author, she said to me, you've always got the option of saying, I'm going to give you the advance back. I'll give you the advance back and I'll walk away. Yeah. And it never came Absolutely. to that, but that made me feel quite empowered to think, actually, yeah, like they don't, they don't have me over a barrel. We could just decide not to do this if it came to it. Well, and also, let's be honest, but for anybody who doesn't realise, you know, book advances for first books, even second books, you know, they're not life-changing sums of money. Yeah, we're not talking about um, books. And, you know, it's 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 not very much money, and certainly in my case, it will it's spread over a, a year, eighteen-month period, yeah. because you get a third of it when you sign the contract, a third of it when you hand over the words, and a third of it on publication day. So, you know, if it's four thousand pounds, you're not retiring on that. <laughs> sum that you spread over a year and a half, you possibly could walk away from. <laughs> So you mentioned at the beginning, we've, we've touched on your books and your social media and the blog, but you've also now got the podcast. Do you, yes. So your podcast is called? The Great Indoors. And people can find that on, I'm assuming, any podcast app. It's on, I know it's on iTunes. It's also on... It's on all those, all those normal platforms where people like to get their podcasts from. Yes, The Great Indoors. And it's me and Sophie. It's every fortnight 
for half an hour. I feel like it's something kind of, especially in this industry that we've kind of put ourselves in, there is a need to kind of always be reinventing yourself and finding the new thing and embracing it and kind of having a go. Do you feel that way about podcasting? It's, I think it's one of those things that was sort of mulling over in my head for a while, a bit like the blog was before I set that up. I thought, I must, everybody's got a blog. I must have a blog. I mean, there was a sort of joke back before 2012 that people would introduce themselves and go, hi, my name is Kate and this is my blog. <laughs> um, so it sort of felt that that was something I needed to do. And then the podcast, I'd been sort of mulling over the idea about what I would do and, and how it would happen. And then I was invited on another podcast and met the producer and she'd asked me on because she was a fan of the blog. She read the blog. Um, and so I said, oh, when I've had the idea, I'll come back to you. And then Sophie and I started talking about it and it all sort of came together with a fabulous producer, Kate Taylor, um, and Sophie Robinson as well. And, you know, there just, there isn't at the moment in the UK a sort of professional interiors podcast. So we felt there was a gap that that we could fill or try and fill. And how has it been received? How are you finding it? You've got three episodes out so far, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. We were, I mean, we were amazed with the first, first we put the first two out together uh, to give sort of, you know, people something to get their teeth into. And we did go up to number six in the UK charts, which was just phenomenal. Um, so the next one, uh, episode three has come out today, so we'll see what happens, but it's had a great response and, you know, we're really happy and lots of people saying that that sort of thing doesn't exist at the moment. I feel like actually as Brits, and wonder, I would love to hear your stance on this actually, but I feel like as Brits, it's not, interviews are not part of our everyday conversation in the same way that they seem to be in a kind of other national identities. Um, and so having a podcast, having a space where you can actually kind of geek out about interiors with people who think like you is a lovely thing to have. I think we're getting much better at interiors in this country. Um, when I was writing for the Financial Times, I ended up doing a sort of series of, over the two years I wrote there on sort of international interior design style. Um, and, and that was quite interesting because I went into quite, well, I didn't go anywhere. I delved into the idea between sort of Nordic and Scandinavian style. And actually, Swedish is very different from Danish, is quite different from Norwegian and Finnish, obviously, a Nordic country is different again. But we do tend to lump them all together mm. into that, you know, Scandi style. Um, and one of the things that someone said to me when I was researching the Danish interior design style is that the Danes are very house proud. They have long, cold, dark winters. They don't go out. They entertain at home. So they want their homes to be nice places. Um, and they do spend money on them because they want, you know, they want people to admire them. They want them to be comfortable for people to come in. Obviously, I'm massively stereotyping, but that was one of the things I was told. Um, and I think, you know, we have got better at entertaining in this country. And we there's more... There's more inspiration out there from blogs and Instagram and the dreaded Pinterest. And uh, so we can we can see more the possibilities of things that are out there. I mean, in a way, that's why I love Instagram over Pinterest, because Pinterest is quite often very professional shots that have been beautifully lit, beautifully styled, that you can't necessarily introduce into your own home. Whereas the Instagram interiors community is all, it is very real homes. You know, this is my sitting room and this is why I painted it this color and this is why that didn't work. And, you know, so you can, we see much more. So I think we're much more receptive to new ideas. 
that's really interesting because yeah, I've had a few interior shoots here at the house and the level of artifice like the amount of piles of crap that get moved to the other side of the room yeah. so they're not in shot and the amount of time that's spent just getting that perfect shot I mean it, it creates the, a beautiful story but and the other thing I've noticed if you look at interiors magazines my house has been in a couple of magazines over the years and I remember if you look at the bathroom shots there's never a loo and uh, quite often there's never any spotlights in the ceiling because those are things people don't want to see. They sort of spoil the beauty of the shot. And I think, you know, that's what we don't always remember when we're looking at pictures of other people's houses, that, yes, they've been professionally lit and tidied, and, you know, the photographers sort of knelt down at a weird angle on the floor to make sure that you don't see the loo, and they've taken out the spotlights because they look ugly and they spoil the plaster work around the edge of the ceiling sort of thing so you know i think instagram is great for that and i think there's a hashtag called insta sham where people are saying look look at this in front of the camera but oh god look at look at what's going on <laughs> um and i think that's that's important that's why instagram you can it's more sort of immediate and you you get a little bit more of the story behind the picture which can be helpful because otherwise you know i think we read about it a lot with uh fashion and models um and you know, retouching pictures and what's real and what's not, um, and that that's not something I particularly know any about. But I think with interiors, there's a way of of keeping it more real, to use a slightly hackneyed phrase, and saying yes, you know, this looks great, but have you seen what's going on behind? So it's not creating another impossible standard for us, and especially for women. I think it's, it it really does seem to fall down the responsibility of that still to women to try and yeah. live up to. Yeah, absolutely. Have you come across this? I might not leave this in, actually, but have you come across Mrs. Hinch home? That's interesting, isn't it? I saw suddenly on Instagram, everybody was talking about cleaning and I didn't really quite understand why. Um, and so I went and had a look. I mean, it, it was a it's a phenomenal thing, isn't it? Yeah. And then just as quickly, there was a huge backlash about all the chemicals. So yeah. I, it's a really odd one because on the one hand, I think she may have inadvertently... Uh, done a massive favor to the to the what's the word the green cleaning industry because people have suddenly gone hang on a minute I'm thinking about all those chemicals I wasn't mm. thinking and I'm not sure that I'm not sure what she intended because I don't know I don't think she set off to to conquer the internet with her cleaning habits but that <laughs> happened um but I, I suddenly think it's made people bizarrely more aware of using you know less chemicals than perhaps they might have been before she exploded onto the scene. I don't know. It certainly hasn't made me want to do any more cleaning. <laughs> me either, but I think it has worked for some. Um, and it kind of, it's been, it started a lot of interesting conversations as well as kind of the whole chemical thing around how homemaking and cleaning and interiors are all still kind of a woman's job or seems to be falling down to women and, and whether that whether that's shifting and whether it needs, well, how it needs to shift. Um, which is just an interesting conversation to be opening up, I think. Again, I don't think that was ever her intention, but it's nice that it's getting some airtime, and I guess it's nice that it's happening via a channel like Instagram where it's real people and, and real homes that are kind of the catalyst. Being sure. And it's sparking the debate, and I think the more we talk about these things, you know, the better it is. Why should it be the women that do the cleaning, not the men? And I'm sure there are plenty of men that do do the cleaning, but it, the more we have these debates, the better it is. It's more it's out in the open, isn't it? So we're not assuming. I mean, you know, one should never assume anything. Um, we're sort of first rule of journalism, don't assume, ask. 
Um, so I think, you know, the conversations about, you know, who's doing the decorating, who's doing the cleaning, who's doing the childcare, the more we have those open conversations, the better it is. There was a huge, um, there was a, a sort of ruck the other day, wasn't there? Because Daniel Craig, James Bond, oh, yeah. has just had a baby and went out with a picture of his baby in a sling. And I think 99.999% of the world went, oh, it's Daniel Craig with his baby. <laughs> Piers Morgan went, oh, my God, he's wearing a baby in a sling. It's not very Bond-like. And he thought, oh, shut up, Piers. But it, it did immediately everybody jumped up and shouted at him, which was brilliant because the majority opinion that I saw seemed to be that he was, um, I need to try and find a polite way of saying it now. <laughs> he was uh, old fashioned and an idiot for taking that viewpoint and everybody else thought it was completely normal that a man should walk around with his baby in a sling in front of him. So the debate is moving on, conversations are being had. Yeah, and the internet seems to be kind of a huge catalyst for a lot of that, which is lovely. So you mentioned somewhere earlier in that that uh, you have mixed feelings about Pinterest. Could you tell us a bit more about that? I think Pinterest is very complicated for reasons I touched on earlier, that, you know, you it gives you that sort of sense of impossible and people pin lots of pictures and they don't really stop and think about whether it's something they can achieve in their own home. And there's a line I've used in the book, which is, you know, it's fine to pin all, pin all those pictures of on your board, but you don't live in an open plan modernist house in Cape Town with a wraparound veranda. You live above a chippy in Neesden. It's not going to work. <laughs> um, so I, I do in the book give a chapter on how to use Pinterest. And I think it's huge and unwieldy and unmanageable. Um, but in in sort of short terms, you need to think very carefully about why you're pinning that picture. And if it's just because you love it, then have a board that is just for pictures you love. If you're actually thinking about decorating your sitting room, then before you put it on your sitting room board, you need to interrogate yourself and the picture as to whether what you're looking at can actually work in any way for you. That's uh, really good advice, yeah, because otherwise it can just make you feel completely depressed about your real-life situation. Exactly, and then you show this thing to the builder and he's like, you know, you what? You can't, you can't possibly have that. <laughs> um, so, that so I think you use Pinterest... I've called it in the book, Your Frenemy, uh, because mm. it does sort of, you know, lures you in with all these great ideas and things. Um, and I think wonderful to be inspired, great to have lots of interesting ideas, but you just have to stop and have a little closer look and go, mm, actually, can I do that uh, before you, you know, instruct the builder? It's probably a little bit like the way you need to use Pinterest if you're pinning fashion in the sense that, you know, if you have a very skinny body, there's no point pinning outfits that you love on plus size bodies or vice versa because absolutely yeah you and want to find you, things that work, bought, we, we listen we've all fallen for it i've bought all of rosie huntington whiteley's underwear in m and bizarrely <laughs> i still don't look like her when i put it on <laughs> um, you know, we're, we're all we all succumb to the dream <laughs> yeah so it's not falling into the same trap i suppose with interiors is a really good tip Kate, where can people find all of your links and these amazing blog posts we've heard about online? So the blog is madaboutthehouse.com and you can actually get to everything from there. But my Instagram is also madaboutthehouse with underscores between the words. And the podcast is The Great Indoors. And you're a Twitter person too as well, aren't you? I'm much less on Twitter. That's my name, at Kate Watson Smythe. You did mention you are on Pinterest, aren't you? Is that going to be the same, do you think? Yes. Mad, Mad about, about the house. house. 
Fantastic. Well, I'll find all the links and I will include them in the show notes so people can come and take a look at what you're doing on all those platforms. Kate, thank you so much for speaking to us today. Thank you for having me. It's been great fun. Show notes for this episode are at meandola.co.uk forward slash 58 because this is episode 58. And both Kate and I would love to hear all of your thoughts and your reactions to everything we've been chatting about this week over on Instagram. Also, a super quick reminder for anyone who's interested that you can find all of the details for my book that I mentioned at meandola.co.uk forward slash book. Thank you so much for listening and I will see you next time.